3: I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, not a Canadian. And Philly's really close to New Jersey, by the way. And I'm here to talk to you about why I am a Patreon supporter of Vish Khanna's Creative Control Podcast, the unique long-form exploration of music, comedy, art, geography, and so much more. Vish is an incredible interviewer who has a charming, disarming, funny, reverently irreverent style which feels a lot more like a conversation with friends than a podcast interview. These conversations have included talking to people like Jeff Tweedy, Nels Klein, Ira Kaplan, Dan Romano, Carson McCone, the white-hot-lung Juliana Rialino, and one of my all-time favorites, the Sadies. So if you're like me and you find these kind of conversations vital, essential, and important, I hope you'll join me in supporting Creative Control on Patreon.
4: To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash Control today.
0: We're dead fucking last. I'm
3: crazy Tom, crazy Marnie, crazy Adam, and fucked up Tony! Fuck you. America!
0: America!
2: Monty Messex is a talented musician and songwriter based in his hometown of Los Angeles, California. After being immersed in the first wave of L.A. punk and hardcore, attending early shows by the likes of The Germs, Black Flag, and Fear, among others, Messex formed the band Adams, whose first drummer, Izzy Stradlin, would go on to play guitar in Guns N' Roses. Mesex and his skater friend, Crazy Tom Davis, later joined forces to form a band called Dead Fucking Last, or DFL, whose original bassist was their friend, Adam Horowitz, from Beastie Boys. DFL's debut album, My Crazy Life, was originally released in 1994 on the Beastie's own label, Grand Royal, and on August 11th, 2023, Trust Records released a deluxe reissue, which includes a 20-page oral history, a zine, and remastered audio by the album's original producer, Mario Caldado Jr. Monty and I connected recently for a wide-ranging talk about stuff like uh, his life growing up in Los Angeles and earliest musical influences, how he first heard about punk and began attending shows with friends, his relationships with people like Izzy Stradlin and Axl Rose, and actually seeing an early show by Guns N' Roses... Being a part of the Germs' social circle and descending into drug addiction himself. Sobering up and collaborating with people like Carla Bozalich, Entering the Beastie Boys' friend network and starting a band with Ad Rock. DFL working with Epitaph Records just as punk was becoming a mainstream concern again. What makes My Crazy Life and Crazy Tom so crazy? What's next for DFL? And much more a part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this donor-driven podcast and spread the word about it, and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash Creative Control. Thanks, as always, for supporting the show on Patreon. Plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is episode 807 of Creative Control. Featuring the lovely and talented Monty Messex from DFL with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hey, Monty, how's it going? Hey, Vish. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Oh, it's uh, my pleasure. It's nice to have you there. Uh, where in the world are you? I
4: am in Los Angeles. I uh, live in, uh, in Silver Lake in Los Angeles, California.
2: Ah, Nice. Yeah, yeah, I love L.A. It's born and raised here, so it's this is home. Oh, nice! I didn't realize you were actually born and raised there. So you've been there your whole life. Have You ever lived anywhere else?
4: Uh, nope. No, I've been <laughs> been all over the world traveling, but I've never lived anywhere else but in the city of L.A.
2: Oh, nice. Well, that's good for you. That's you know you you know yourself. You know what you like clearly. <laughs> that's great, and uh and sorry of the places you visited uh was there anywhere you're like this this is a close second if i had to relocate this would be the place anywhere in the world
4: i don't know you know i mean i like to i like to visit places but this is home you know it's like my family's here and i know where every everything is (laughs) and uh and yeah i don't i don't know i mean i know people that like from L.A., like they'll move up to San Francisco. And like San Francisco is a really amazing city to visit. But some friends will move there and they always come back right.
2: <laughs> to L.A.
4: Because <Yeah. laughs> living someplace and visiting someplace are two different things.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I haven't been to, oddly, in all my travels around the world and in America from Canada, I just have not made it to California. And it's weird. I mention this sometimes. I assume I'll be there some at some point because I have friends there and lots of things I want to experience and visit. So hopefully I get to, to be there soon. Uh, uh, by the same token, have you ever been to Canada?
4: Uh, I have, I've been to, uh, we just played a f- uh, festival in, um, Montreal uh, oh. called Pooza Fest. Oh, cool. And with this guy, uh, Hugo Moody, uh, I think he was in the St. Catharines and, um, Great guy. He invited us, and second time we've been there. And um, I think in the '90s we toured. We played in Vancouver with Pennywise while we were on tour with them.
2: Mm
4: -hmm. And um, I've been to Vancouver too when I was a little kid. I think we went to Victoria Island, but it's, it's beautiful up there. And speaking of places to move, I know a lot of people, at least from the U.S., were thinking about moving to Canada. You know, with with the, with the results of the last election if they would have gone the other way I know a lot of people were, were thinking about it, about getting out yeah so I don't know if I don't know if people did that or not you haven't thought of that have you no I, well I mean I, you know you think about it but yeah. uh, but no like I said this is home hmm.
2: all right well no it's good like I say it's good that you know yourself and uh, this is where uh, your band DFL uh formed in Los Angeles and uh, we want to get into that history. Uh first of all, congratulations on the the reissue of uh this record My Crazy Life. Uh I had this on a uh, compact disc in the 90s. Uh because I nice. I was a huge Beastie Boys fan. I have it somewhere still. I can't locate it. I meant to locate it before I uh we got on this call and uh, it's somewhere in the I brought all my CDs. People make fun of me for keeping physical media of any kind. Uh, I have a record collection and Compact disc Are you a physical media person, or have you embraced the intangible digital media landscape?
4: Uh, I'm both person. You know, I mean, I it's I definitely have embraced like you know the digital media and the ways that you can access uh, songs you know online through Spotify or whatever. Yeah. And recording too. You know, in, in this day and age, you know, you can record tracks at one place and bounce them over to somebody in some place. Completely different in the world, and they can they can work on them, and so it's it's cool. You know, it has its upsides, yeah. and, and and you can get music out to a lot of people. But I also still have my record collection. I still believe in in physical media like records and we we uh, tapes and, and and I think I might have some. I still have a couple CDs floating around. I have some cassettes and and I pretty much saved all my punk rock records from when I got into punk in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. So I still have tons of those records.
2: Oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, some of the CDs I've kept, uh, you know, there was a period in the mid-90s mid, uh, mid 90s to the at least maybe 2010 or something where certain bands, they would only press their work on uh, compact discs, certainly independent bands, because that's what was in vogue. So if I didn't keep those, they're, they're not on any band camp or any other digital platform. So that's kind of why I keep them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. So you alluded to the fact that you uh, have been collecting um, punk rock since the uh, 70s. Uh, Monty, how did you sort of get into uh, music uh, as a young person? Do you remember what uh, inspired you? Yeah,
4: you know, I've, I've always loved music my whole life. It's, you know, it's always one of those things, like, I guess for a lot of people, you know, it just, it just... You know, it speaks to me, you know, I, I can feel it, it touches me in a way. And from when I was a little kid in like the 70s, you know, listening to like my mom's stuff with like Bob Dylan and stuff like that and getting into, you know, Zeppelin and Sabbath and stuff like that when I was a little kid and Aerosmith and then punk rock and like my first punk show in 79 and just hearing that music and just being like, wow, you know, I'm home. This is, this is what I've, what I've been looking for my whole life, you know, in terms of just the feel of it and the vibe of the scene and everything.
2: Yeah. Who, who, what was that first, uh, punk rock show you saw in 79?
4: Uh, I went with, um, some friends actually of Tom Davis. He, he wasn't there, but we were all friends. Um, I went with my friend Taz my friend Drew Bernstein and, We, we like, basically, Drew stole his mom's car. He had, like, this this little yellow Honda Civic. And uh, we drove down to downtown LA. There's, like, a place called Chinatown in downtown LA. And there's a club there called the Hong Kong Cafe. And uh, I think it was Halloween 79. And uh, we were just, you know, I was probably about 15, maybe, at the time. And... You know, just looking in the paper, there was a there was a paper called, the, I think it was Valley Weekly or The Recycler or one of those papers. And it listed off all the shows for that week. And so we were like, oh, here's this show. It had bands that sounded cool. And we knew a little bit about punk rock from listening to like Rodney on the Rock at like 12 midnight. And um, went there and, and uh, we saw the germs headline. Oh, wow. Fear. Wow. This art band that was really pretty interesting called Chinas Comidas, which would be one of those bands that definitely you wouldn't find on uh, probably on digital media. You'd have to have like, you know, the, the records they put out. I don't even know if they did put out records. And then the opening band was Black Flag wow. with Keith Morris singing. And Keith was, it was like Halloween. So Keith was like crammed into this little kid Spider Man costume, like you'd buy at like a, at like a, you know, like a pharmacy or something you know, like for us, like CBS or something, something like that. And I just thought it was so funny because he was like rolling around on the floor on this, um, in this Spider-Man costume. And Hong Kong was really cool. It had this really low ceiling and this very, very low stage, like maybe six inches off the ground. And, uh, it smelled like Chinese food and sweat and cigarettes. And, and I just
2: loved it. Oh, that sounds <laughs> incredible. a quick side note, uh, I've seen off a, a, a many times and Keith and I have spoken many times he is very funny so your description of him uh, it resonates with me um had you heard any of the like that's an amazing lineup germs fear and Black Flag had you heard them at 15 years old had you heard any of their music before you went to their show
4: like I said I, I you know we would listen to Rodney on the rock so that was at that time that was the only Place you could really hear like punk rock or new wave, right? And I don't know if I had, you know, it's a long time ago. I don't know if I really had heard any of that music. I know that, like, shortly after, um, I did go out and buy Black Flag's first Nervous Breakdown 7 Inch, which I still have, mm-hmm. and I went out and bought uh, the Germs record, which which I still have, and I and I also had for me, which was their first seven inch, but hmm. I think I threw it at a friend of mine. and It's broken
2: in half. You sorry, you threw it at a friend of yours? Is that what you just said? I think so. <laughs> it's broken in half. Were you? Were so, you? But, you, I, but you were, I still have it. Were you? You were angry at the friend. you were trying to hurt the friend.
4: I don't know. I think we were just being, being idiots. Because stuff at each other. <laughs> if someone
2: throws a record at you, at you, and it's chucked the right way, it might leave a, a bit of a, a bruise. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay well we're not going to get into the weird socio-politics of throwing records at people at your age that's fine okay so coming from your background of uh oh by the way you mentioned a few things there Aerosmith Zeppelin Dylan um are you do you maintain an interest in any of those things uh because sometimes when people discover punk rock it obliterates uh all the stuff that they came up with and they're almost angry at it. Oh, that was bullshit. This is the real stuff. Uh, as you're older now, do you appreciate some of the music your, your mother got into and, and you first heard,
4: you know, I, I never really was like, that's, that's bullshit. You know I mean? It was, I mean, definitely in early punk rock days, it was kind of like, you know, you only listen to punk rock and don't listen to anything else, you know, because those were like the hippies or whatever. But, you know, I've always loved Zeppelin, you know, uh, and, and Sabbath and Aerosmith, and, and I still do. I mean, those are great bands. I mean, yeah. I was listening to them yesterday. I had to, to drive, I had like an hour and a half drive yesterday in traffic. And so I made like this classic rock mix on my uh, my phone <laughs> and listened to it like all the way down there. Oh, So I mean,
2: well, you're, great songs, you, man. You wouldn't know this, of course, but you're, you're speaking right now to a, a huge Bob Dylan fan. Have you maintained any interest in him?
4: Uh, not as, not as much, yeah. not as, not, not as much. I mean, he definitely great songwriter and, you know, and has written some, some amazing, you know, obviously amazing songs and, and albums and just done groundbreaking stuff. Yeah. But not as much, not, not as much as like, say for like Zeppelin or something like that or Sabbath or even Aerosmith at the time, like toys in the attic and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and rocks and stuff like that.
2: I see. Okay. Makes sense. So you went more in the uh, harder rock, riff oriented realm, I suppose.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I love like Nashville Skyline and um, Girl from the Northwoods
2: or North Country. Like that. It's a song. Girl did. from the would, would, Yeah. Yeah, North
4: Country. They did with with Johnny Cash. Yeah. I mean, that's that's an amazing song. I love. I mean, just thinking about that song gives me goosebumps.
2: It's a beautiful recording. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, cool. I didn't mean to dwell too much. Uh, for those who listen to the show, they know any entry point into Dylan, I'm going to take it and see where we go. So sorry about that. <laughs> right that was a bit of a side uh, a side note there. So you're uh, when you're 15 and you're seeing that punk rock show. Uh, are you already at that point uh, yourself playing any music, like playing guitar or anything like that?
4: Uh, yeah, it's a good question. So around that time, around '79, when we first saw that that punk show, and then and then subsequently started going to lots of punk shows. I mean, there were shows every night of the week that you could go to. And you go to the Hong Kong, you could go in West Hollywood to the Starwood, you could go to the South Bay and to the, the Fleetwood you could go to East LA to the Vex. I mean, there was just tons of clubs, you know, downtown, Hope street hall. So there was just every night you could go out and see a band. It was just, you know, amazing. And so myself and one of the guys that I went to that show with, this guy, Taz, uh, Taz Rudd, he and I started a, a punk rock band called the Adams, A T O M S. And, um, we never put anything out. We played a lot of shows and we were, we kind of were part of the scene and, and, uh, Actually, I was on a podcast with another Canadian, with Damien Abraham, Mm -hmm. on his podcast. I think it was like last year or something. And uh, he knew all about the atoms, or at least he wanted to know all about the atoms. He knew a little bit that was publicly available. So I was on his show uh, to talk about the atoms, uh, which was cool. (laughs) Damien's
2: a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, and he's a walking encyclopedia of a hardcore punk. So I'm sure, uh, he knew all about the atoms, I'm guessing. And that's, that's lovely that you got to talk about that. And this is a band, by the way, for those who don't know, uh, if I understand things correctly, uh, also in this band, Izzy Stradlin before he was in guns and roses. Is that correct?
4: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so Izzy like showed up on like the punk scene from, uh, Indiana, I think is where he was from. Yeah. And, and we knew him as Jeff. Uh, I never knew him as Izzy Stradlin really, and uh, he played drums in the Atoms for, oh. for a while, actually. I have some recordings, uh, which are like these practice, like basically somebody like had like a cassette. I don't know, you probably remember a cassette player. You hit record and, and, yeah. and play and, and it records it. Uh, so I have some, some tapes and then there's like a bootleg seven inch out there of, uh, with Izzy on it he, uh, yeah, he played drums with us. He store, I remember he had his drums he had them at my mom's, when I lived with my mom, he, when I was a kid, they were like in my bedroom and, and, and like, like stacks of like boxes of his and stuff. Mm. <laughs> um, and then he left, um, to, he like literally left the band, like to go play. Uh, he wanted to be like, uh, like kind of like a Sunset Strip, like rock band. And we were kind of like, looked down our nose at him for doing that, but, <laughs> uh, but but he, yeah, I mean, we went and saw Guns N' Roses, actually, at, that, at a frat party at uh, UCLA, and, uh, and they blew our minds. They were so fucking good. It was oh, wow. Just, it, was, it was insane how good they were. There were probably maybe 10 people there.
2: Was uh, So Izzy was your drummer. Uh, for those who don't know, he was uh, known as a, a guitar player in Guns N' Roses and uh, sort of left uh, at the height of their fame, in a way, I think... Uh, uh, I'm not a Guns N' Roses fan per se, but I just because of the culture, I I want to say he left uh, f- around that use, the Use Your Illusion records, maybe like kind of after they'd gone really big, uh, and then has been kind of a mysterious uh, figure. You know, every once in a while he'll pop up and play with them and, and whatnot. So yeah, a couple of things. Uh, I didn't realize he played drums. Was he a, was he a great drummer?
4: Nope, okay drummer. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> he was he was a, a medium drummer
4: yeah i mean he was you know he, i mean we were like a, just a sloppy punk rock band so he was he was pretty good for that
2: okay and but but did you was he playing guitar at that point as well not in with you guys but did you know if he was playing guitar nope. okay, no okay so never. so so you go to see his <laughs> new band or whatever and you discover that he can play guitar So there's a discover it was a revelation for you
4: Yeah, no, I knew that when he joined uh, Guns N' Roses, he was a guitar player
2: Hmm.
3: in
4: in the band. I knew that already. But when he was in the Adams, he was a drummer, and he never, never played guitar. Showed any interest. But the interesting thing, though, is uh, when he did show up in Guns N' Roses. A lot of, I mean, his style was, you could tell, it was like real heavily influenced by like Keith Richards and yeah. Johnny Thunders and like that kind of thing. And, and the guitar player in the Adams, Taz, also like had that same look. So I, Taz used to gripe that a lot of that, that Izzy like stole a lot of his look from him.
2: <laughs> like that kind of. That's true or not. Th- that stylish newsboy hat and the vest, that kind of thing.
4: Yeah, yeah, Taz used to dress exactly like that. Like, like,
2: <laughs> yeah, like Johnny Thunders a little bit too. Okay. So, uh, yeah, we, we loved Johnny Thunders. Absolutely. Everyone did who, uh, I mean, that's a sad story. I will say that. Uh, but, uh, uh yeah, yeah, very beloved. I, I just want to, uh, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but for those, uh, I was, I was touching upon the fact that, uh, Izzy Stradlin is, is sort of an enigmatic figure. You've alluded to what he was like as a musician. Uh if did you just give us an impression, what was Jeff as you knew him? What was he like? Was he a, a quiet guy? Was he a boisterous guy? Was he easy to get along with? Those sorts of things?
4: Yeah, very easygoing, very easygoing um chill person. And and then I remember Jeff said that his friend Bill was coming from Indiana also. hmm and so, I remember we were at this one club called Raji's in Hollywood, another punk rock club on Hollywood Boulevard. And so, so we had met Bill a couple times and then Bill then turned into like this rock dude and, would, and turned out went on to be Axl Rose. Yeah. And I remember we were at Raji's and I was looking at this one like rock guy and it was like this nighttime or in the club, he's wearing like like, like aviator glasses that are mirrored and has on this like crazy rock and roll hat and stuff. (laughs) And I'm looking at am like, who the fuck is this? And then he lifts up his glasses. He goes, Monty, Monty, it's me, Bill.
2: And I was like, oh, damn. (laughs) (laughs) Bill became became Axel. (laughs) So just again, I don't want to dwell on this because it's not really your story, but are you suggesting that, I, I mean, yes, the lore is it's obvious? Like Guns N' Roses became a Sunset Strip uh, band, and like a, a glam rock, cock rock, whatever you want to call it, that kind of band. But did they have intimations of being more of a punk band at, at any point? Like a almost a hardcore band? Uh, when no, not at all. Okay, so Bill shows no. up. Not as far as
4: not as far as I know. They always were like going to be a Sunset. Like there was a place on Sunset at that time called Gizari, so That's where all like the the, the like the hair bands and metal bands would play. Yeah. You know, and, and the the rainbow. So that's like that was a, it was a whole other scene. Totally different scene than than the punk scene. Right. Uh, you know, I mean people would mix a little bit, but it was it was pretty different. I will say this about Guns and Roses. I mean that first record I mean those are great songs. They're great songwriters and they're great musicians. So they, you know, it was, it was really good. <laughs> like I said, we saw them at at a frat party and it just blew our minds.
2: Yeah. And certainly informed by punk, thrash metal, what? Like uh, their thrash metal tendencies were... Is that safe to say? I know we get a little defensive and there can be an orthodoxy around what punk means. I don't think of them as a punk band in any other. I I think Bill and Jeff showed up from Indiana to be rock stars in L.A., basically. And just by the way you described how they changed, they were adapting to what it meant to be a a rock star, uh, I think. Is that a fair way of putting it?
4: Uh, I guess so. I guess so. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they were definitely like a glam, glam hair band, you know. Yeah. But they they were just really good <laughs> at what they did. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and really and really good songwriters.
2: Did you see them? You mentioned that uh, show you went to with ten people. Did you see them more uh, before they kind of blew up? Nope. No, that was it. Okay. That was, that was the only.
4: And I remember, I remember Axel at the time at the, at the UCLA party. Not to like again spend too much time on Guns and Roses, but. He was wearing assless, cheap, um, assless chaps. So he was, he was walking around with his butt, in other words, with his butt sticking out with these yeah. chaps. And, you know, there were all these jocks at this, uh, at this frat that, that were really, really upset about <laughs> that he was freaking people out a lot at this yeah. frat party. I mean, well, you know, we went to the, the frat party part to support Jeff. You know, we were like, okay, let's go see Jeff's new band. You know, go jump in the car and go.
2: Yeah. Sorry. What were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say that's certainly the New York doll's influence, right? The androgyny, the, the flirting with, uh, I, I guess homosexuality, really. I mean, on some level, like taking things from that culture, you know, in, in retrospect, it was pretty bold of them, I guess. Would you agree? the the assless chaps
4: at a UCLA frat party is pretty fucking bold. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty brave, right? Yeah. There's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's pretty in your face. Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. Okay. (laughs) Well, anyway, I just, uh, again, thanks for indulging me. I'm again, not really a fan of, uh, I'm not a fan of that band, but I, it's intriguing these connections you have Monty and the work you've done and the, and the people that have kind of, uh, proven uh, to be really interesting collaborators so the Adams forms I think in the early 80s how long does that band last
4: not very long like 79 to like 82 ish oh okay I would say so it's pretty pretty much just at like kind of the, the dawning kind of that transition from like the 70s punk rock and Hollywood and like the germs and the dills and middle class and suburban lawns and you know, all those types of bands. And it was kind of, they were more screamers. They were more like kind of coming from like an art scene, I guess, in, in a way. Um, uh, yeah. then there was a transition into more of like a hardcore kind of thing that started coming in with like black flag and, uh, the adolescent circle jerks, you know, all those bands started kind of changing. So it was kind of on the cusp of like that transition in, in punk rock, uh, at least in Hollywood and in L.A., and yeah. the Adams, we were really into um, into Johnny Thunders and, uh, and Rolling Stones, kind of Exile and Main Street kind of kind of vibe, I guess. Too, I don't know, but so that that was that was kind of the vibe that we were. I mean, it was it was thrashy garage rock is really what it turned out to be, in kind of in punk rock scene. But yeah, it lasted about about till eighty two, and then I ended up getting you know my, my hero was Johnny Thunders, and uh, and I ended up getting really really involved with drugs. There was a lot of drugs in that scene, regardless of Johnny mm-hmm. Thunders. I mean, people were using tons of tons of uh, tons of narcotics and and speed and every which way. And I ended up getting kind of involved in that, and that that really was the end of that band. And then
2: uh, oh no, um, I'm sorry to well. I was kinda of, That's. I didn't realize that was your trajectory. Um, are you doing okay now, days?
4: Oh yeah, yeah. Thank God. You know, I uh, was really pretty involved with with drugs in from probably about eighty three, and then and then you know, uh, fortunately and grateful, I uh, was able to get sober in eighty seven and been sober ever since.
2: Oh well, it's good so, for you, and and we're all um, we're all happy uh, because. What I was gonna say is, um, in retrospect, that LA scene that you're describing, the hardcore and punk scene, there's tragedy there, there's darkness there, um, even in the music that was being made, it was yeah, it was there was a hue to it that was like, in retrospect, it was, yeah, I guess darkness is the only way to put it. But um, that you're again, you were getting into drugs, uh, I assume. Uh, sadly, you might have lost some friends and 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 people in the scene. Uh, is that a fair assessment of that time?
4: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, I I mean, I think the f- person that comes to mind the most for me was Darby Crash. You yeah. know, he. I mean, I was younger than him. Um, i think he was probably in his early 20s and i was probably like 16 or 17 so then if you're like in your 20s and you're a teenager you know that the, they seem like so much older than you when probably just a couple of years but he was you know really into drugs and uh and you know and, and was one of the people you know to you know, pass away for their time because of that well he took and his uh, own
2: took his own life and that um yeah, I can't imagine what that would do to someone like you looking you are saying you kinda of looked up to the germs, right?
4: Well yeah. I mean they you know I mean I remember the, the day that I heard he passed that he died, it was it was pretty devastating.
2: Yeah. You know.
4: And actually I say I am the type of person I like to save all this shit. So I saved like all the other articles that were like in the, the, the local paper and, and actually I think he died like A day or two or week before John Lennon was was murdered, yeah, and then that was like the big news was John Lennon, you know, for for all the reasons that you think of. But yeah, yeah, there were a lot of people, and that guy Taz who I played with in the in in uh, in Adams, you know, where I was fortunate enough to to get out of the drug scene, and you know, and, and and fortunately have you know kind of get my life back. Taz never did, you know, he stayed in the drug scene until, um, until he died, you know, he, oh. he died at a
2: homeless camp, you know, so, hmm. uh, I'm so s- yeah, I'm so sorry. God. I'm so sorry, uh, that that happened. And, uh, and I didn't mean to, um, you know, uh, open old wounds, so to speak, but, uh, I think some of us, uh, got a real impression of, the scene that we're describing from some of the documentaries that were made, including the decline of Western civilization, is there any chance you were in footage from the films and documents from that time that uh, that we might have, you know, caught sight of you real quick or something?
4: Uh, I I actually was at most of those shows and actually went with uh, the germs with Darby and the, we all drove to go do the filming together. But I was I was. I don't know just being very very aloof so when it came to being filmed i didn't like it and so i would just kind of hang back and uh hmm. and was never but i went to many of those shows they did a they filmed in uh, the south bay at the fleetwood i can't remember where they filmed the germs i think the germs might have been at the hong kong i can't remember
2: i have to look at the film that sounds right from my vague memory of the film i think you're correct yeah yeah, because we were we all like
4: hung out together with, with with Darby and actually Darby lived with this woman Amber and her husband and it was in Hollywood right down the street from where my mom where I grew up. So I used to walk down from my mom's house and and hang out with Amber and Darby, Don. That was Amber's husband, Don, and um, at this apartment over on uh, Franklin. You know, I lived on Beechwood. And I'd walk down and hang out with him. And I remember one time he got locked out of his house. And so he came up to my house, was hanging out on the couch. My mom came home and was talking with him. And she was, uh, she's into the Baha'i faith. So she's talking with him. And somehow or another, the Baha'i faith came up. And then he's saying, yeah, I'm reading this book where, like, my faith is, like, I take some dice and I guess in this book, you assign different things to the dice that you do. And so that's what that was like. He was like trying to explain that to my mother about some, huh. some dice thing. And it also included murder in it. So I don't know. not that he murdered anybody, but uh, it was an interesting interaction. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I, that's interesting. So you, yeah, you're, you know, you for us now, this is, you know, stuff of historical note and you were right there. Um, I want to get us to that. uh, Well, first of all, so you mentioned from uh, the end of the band, Adams in '83 to around '87, um, you were immersed in drugs. And is it safe to say you weren't making much music in that time, or were you?
4: No, no, not no music. Just just chasing chasing drugs. That's
2: all. (laughs) Okay, hundred percent. So you get sober in '87. When does music re-enter the picture for you as a player, as a writer, these sorts of things?
4: Oh, that's a good question. So, yeah, it's opened up in 87, and I think about 88 or so. I had a guitar, because, again, like I loved Giant Thunder, so I had like this Les Paul Jr. that I bought in the early 80s It um, was used like probably some, like I don't know, 1960 or so, Les Paul Jr., um, I won't go into the, there's like a story with that guitar. I won't go into it, but, um, <laughs> okay. and, uh, and, uh, well, actually another thing that got thrown, that guy guitar got tasked through. it. His girlfriend broke it in half and, uh, we had somebody glue it back together. Who was like a guitar person, luthier. And and then I also had him paint it white and turn it into a double cutaway. Cause I wanted it to look like Johnny Thunder's guitar. Yeah. It actually has the, the wrong cutaway. So I had a guitar, um, and and then uh, bought an amp in like maybe 88 or something like that, this uh, old Mesa Boogie, and started playing playing guitar. So i tried to start a band with um, this woman, Carla Boslich. She was oh, in the yeah. band, Eth- Ethel Meatplow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Her Her and I tried to start a band together. And then uh, Eric Avery, who was playing in Jane's Addiction at the time, he came and jammed with us and played bass for a while. Uh, but that band never never played out, never, that's, never took off.
2: You played in a band with Carla Bozlich? And that's – sorry, I'm a big fan of Carla. So that's – wow, that's amazing. Wow, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, Carla
4: and I were very, very good friends at that time. Yeah. And, uh, and we did we, – we tried to – we went practiced and wrote songs and did stuff. And then I think she ended up, you know, Ethel Me Plow and started – you know, took off. And uh, with John Napier, who also was a very, very good friend. And then, of course, Eric Avery was, you know, in Jane's Addiction. That was blowing up mm-hmm. at that time, like yeah. huge. Which, again, th- those early Jane's Addiction records are just great. Those first two records are amazing. And then, so that band didn't work out, and but I still had my guitar, and I uh, started listening to um, more early '80s hardcore. I had this uh, cassette for uh, "How Could Help Be Any Worse" from uh, by Bad Religion. I think mm-hmm. it was like their first release. Mm-hmm. I just started listening to that cassette a lot, you know, and I had like a job that I had to ride the bus. So I'd just be on the bus listening to it. And yeah, I got into it and I just started writing uh, hardcore songs on my guitar and and kind of in the vein of early bad religion, uh, minor threat, wasted youth, early adolescence and it just kind of brought me back to that early 80s scene you know of uh, you know starwood vex you know, all these clubs i used to go to and uh yeah just started just messing around writing writing hardcore songs uh the band i was doing with carla was more kind of uh again kind of more i guess garage kind of thrash rock kind of thing right and so this was the band stuff i started writing for th- for this for this, which wasn't good writing for a band or anything. It was just for the fun of it is, uh, was was way more hardcore kind of stuff. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I started doing that and that's how I kind of, you know, kind of entered into like, you know, DFL and stuff like that.
2: But beyond, so, but beyond, so the Carla thing didn't work out. You started, uh, you know, immersing yourself in early eighties, uh, hardcore and bad religion and things like that. Um, you're kind of just, which what's the word? Uh, workshopping? You're just doing this on your own, basically. You know, playing with yourself.
4: <laughs> yeah, I playing with myself. I do that a lot. Um, I I uh, was yeah, just for the fun of it. I mean, I love writing songs. You know, that's 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 when I, as soon as I have a guitar in my hand, I you know I can't play other people's music. I'm really bad at covers. I'm not the world's greatest guitar player. And I, all I can do is play my own music. So I just start writing songs as soon as I'm playing guitar. You know, I get bored with, with the stuff I've already written and, uh, and I just start just cranking out songs.
2: That's yeah. what I do. It seems like you're a, kind of an impulsive player to some extent then. Like you, you play a thing and then you're kind of, you know, uh, it, we'll get into the DFL uh, record that we're here to talk about in a moment because it seems to me that it was done quickly but do you consider yourself kind of like an impulsive player in that you've come up with something, you play it, and then you kind of move on? Uh, is that – am I capturing you in some way?
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, some songs come together really quickly. Some songs kind of linger, and you have to, like, kind of go back to the riff and mess around with it until until it sounds right. But I am – I guess – I don't know if I've ever thought of myself being an impulsive player. But, yeah, you know, I mean, I just, I just kind of just – that's what I do is just, you know, when, I'm, when I have a guitar and I'm playing, I just start writing music.
2: Maybe impulsive is the wrong word. You don't dwell on things too much. Is that a way of putting it? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, just, I, don't have to, <laughs> I don't have to encapsulate you in one or two ways. I just, uh, I'm trying to get a handle on it because it, it does seem like you're decisive on some level. You make a thing and that's it. That's it. That's what it is. And then you move on. Yeah,
4: definitely the way DFL records. Yeah. Yeah, definitely that is 100% the way DFL records and and that that I love is like we don't we don't dwell on stuff. It's more about like the performance and the and the energy and the feeling and you know, I mean, but we can get into like the whole recording thing in a, in a bit if you want.
2: No, I do want to because it seems to me that then the the next big so in the in the time frame we're talking about is your next band ostensibly DFL Yep. Okay. Yep. How did it sort of first start? You're you're the you're the riff master. You're the Jimmy Page guy. You've got guitar <laughs> parts. What happens next?
4: Uh, well, at that time in like 88, 89, uh, a good friend of ours, Ioni Sky, who was more of a friend of my brothers growing up in Hollywood. Um, actually, Mike, my brother, was really good friends with Ioni's brother, Don, Donovan, and. Anyway, Ioni starts hanging out with us um, a, a bit, you know. Um, and at the time, early on, she was like dating Anthony Ketis, who also was a friend of ours who I grew up with in, in Hollywood, him and Flea. Oh, yeah. And uh, anyway, Ione, I think she broke up with Anthony and starts dating uh, Adam Horowitz. And that's kind of how I got to know Adam was through Ione. And then we had my wife and I, Kim, my wife, Kim Jones. We had a son and uh, who I, I met her like after I stopped using drugs mm-hmm. in like '88. And we had a son in '89. And uh, and Ione was just really into We are like the first people in our, in our scene to have a, a kid, and um, Ione was just really enamored by our, our son Bella. And she would want to babysit, and so her and Adam would come over and, and babysit Bella, and uh, and so we just got to know know the beasties through that, you know, and just start hanging out with Adam and going to lunches and birthday parties and weddings. I went to, to Adam's wedding, Adam and Ioni's wedding, Adam and Ioni came to my wedding, um, and you know, just just doing just they were just like friends. And uh, one day I was. Writing all these punk rock songs, and and since they were friends, I would go over to to G Sun and, and hang out there and see what was going on, and and I just was kidding around, I guess, with Adam. I was just like, hey, you know, uh, I wrote these these hardcore songs. Would you you want to you know you want to check them out or something like that? And and you know, one thing led to another, and I just threw the idea out. He liked the songs of starting a band, and he and he he was into it, and so. We, we, we started DFL and I came up with the name mm-hmm. and then we recruited uh, uh, Tom Davis who was an old friend of mine Tom I had known for since back in the punk scene actually in the skating scene because Tom and I skated together in the, in the, in the late 70s and uh, I used to sleep over actually at Tom's house when he lived in Malibu and that's how I knew him and his sisters but yeah got Tom to sing and, and, uh, and I think we actually had Max Perlick uh, who was also hanging around a lot, and was he was good friends with Adam. Uh, Max, I think, was going to sing. It didn't. I don't think that panned out. Uh, I think Mike D played drums for for a second or two, and uh, then we got Tony Converse to play drums. And one thing led to another, you know, and just started, you know, cranking out new songs, and and they sounded good, and it was easy at G Sun, and and I think, you know, one night we just. Recorded everything. I think Adam was like, "Hey, you know, we're gonna record uh, everything," and Mario set it up, set up all the, the mics, and you know, we just recorded it live, you know. Um, and uh, I didn't really think much, you know. We weren't like signed to to Grand Royal or anything like that, yeah. or, or to anybody. It was just like just for the fun of it, really. And and then uh, I think I went to sc- I was in school at the time, and uh, I went. To England for the summer for some school project, and while I was in England. My wife like wrote me and said like the, that the Beasties had released this record, and, um, uh, and I was like, "Oh wow, that's that's crazy!" And came back and you know, had had like the seven inch, but nobody had really asked me about it. I don't think. That's not that I minded. It was, it was I was happy about it.
2: No one asked you or notified. I guess this was pre-internet, so no one could just fire off a text or an email. That's hilarious. You didn't. You found out the album you played on and wrote was out while you were in England. Is that, that's kind of amazing. <laughs> something,
4: something like that. I've, I remember my wife like sending me a letter maybe or something. I don't, wow. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it came out slightly before. I don't know, but somewhere around there, but I, I wasn't like part of, of that. And actually through this release that we did with trust, uh, we wrote this 10,000 word oral history yeah and I actually learned a lot about the release that I didn't know you know kind of in turn from uh, we interviewed one uh, this one guy uh, Max Burgos who who was a label manager for uh, Grand Royal at the time and he shared all this information that I just had no idea about about in terms of you know Adam how passionately Adam felt about the release.
2: oh. Well, that's lovely. I was going to ask, like, that's an interesting milieu you describe. You 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 talk about uh, several of the people you mentioned are actors or you know Hollywood type people, and, and then there's a skate. You got skaters, you got musicians, uh, and it was very, you know, it sounds like it was like a social product, DFL, in a lot of ways. Like, you know, uh, for some people, uh, joking around with Adam from Beastie Boys to to actually uh, have that lead to a collaboration might be uh, a little surprising, but it, you were friends with him. It was natural, right? You were, it was, there was never a point where uh, the beastie uh, affiliation was a distraction or anything like that. Or maybe later that became the case, but this was all very organic, I guess is what I'm getting at. That's what it sounds like. Is that fair?
4: Yeah. Very, very organic, very kind of just not, not like a planned kind of thing and just, um, and it was, it was a very social, I mean, very social kind of thing going on that, you know, kind of here in Silver Lake, you know, I mean, Mike D, we lived in Echo Park, which is near Silver Lake, and, uh, and Mike D um, was actually married to Tom's sister, Tom, who's a singer in DFL, to his sister, Tamara. Oh,
2: Tamara, right, yeah, 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 Tammy D. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so Tamara,
4: Tamara Davis is Tom's older sister. Oh, Okay. And Tamara, and Mike lived around the corner from from us, and then I think she moved on to maybe a bigger house. I'm guessing <laughs> actually they did get a bigger house. Her and Mike got a bigger house in in Silver Lake. Yeah. Uh, that we used to go to all the time and hang out there as well. This would have like a pool and stuff like that. Oh, cool. And uh, and then Tom's other sister, Kim, moved into that house with Wag, and and Wag played in Mary's Danish, um, which was like a, a pretty. Well-known band in the early '90s, hmm. so yeah, it was. It was like a scene, and there was uh, the Extra Large store. So XL, you know, was was here in, um, I guess, it's Silver Lake on Vermont, and we would go over there and hang out with with the guys from the, ex, from the Extra Large store, and yeah, it was it was just like a whole scene. Yeah, yeah it, was. Very, it was pretty cool.
2: Very heady time, I imagine. Uh, lots going on. It yeah. sounds like. Yeah. That sounds that sounds exciting. So, uh, Adam is in the band in an impromptu way. Uh, you make, uh, this record together. Uh, he doesn't stay in the band for long. Is that right?
4: Yeah. So we played a few shows. I mean, I think we played, we played with Fugazi once at the Palladium. We played a couple bar shows. Our friend owned a bar in Hollywood. So we, we played there I think it was called the Gaslight. And, um, uh, we played Lollapalooza. There was a Lollapalooza here in uh, kind of in LA. It was on the San Gabriel Valley. And I think, I think we played the, f- the second stage and we were the first band that played. And we did it the first day and they liked us so much they asked us back the next day. Oh, cool. Uh, which, I, which I thought was funny. But you and, played it, you uh, played
2: it like noon, right?
4: Yeah, like noon. Literally, people are like walking, walking because the, the second stage is, like right near one of the entrances. So people literally are walking in past us while we're playing. And Adam is in the ba- uh,
2: Adam's in the band at, at these shows. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. That's
1: all. Yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah, we were like the opening band for Fugazi again. As people like are walking into the Palladium, you know, we're playing. Yeah, which I thought was cool. You know, they didn't like say like, well, "I'm Adam Horvitz and we've got to do da-da-da. They they were always pretty pretty humble about things.
2: He seems like a very humble, I have a limited experience, I interacted with him this year, Adam Horowitz, I mean, and he seems like such a lovely and humble guy. And, uh, you know, I don't want to go on about it. People have heard it just meant so much to me to connect with him because it's very few artists I can say I've, I've loved since I was, you know, what, seven years old, uh, eight years mm-hmm. old when I first heard BC boys. And yeah, he just seems like a lovely guy. But, uh, so I just want to say that, 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 that checks out for me that he wouldn't, be playing any ego games i'll play at noon i don't care i'm just in a punk band you know what i mean like that's i just want to say that's nice it's just nice to hear that
4: mm-hmm. yeah yeah, yeah
2: totally. and, but but he but he didn't last in the uh, just to back to my earlier point you played some shows with him uh the band as we're speaking is still going right
4: yeah you know we we we, we played some shows and it, and it turned out to be kind of a, a good thing where you're writing songs and and people were into the music and uh we wanted to to do another record and, and actually I went and spoke with, with Mike about it and, and about doing another record with Grand Royal and uh, I, don't, I don't think he was that into it. Hmm. And so uh, Brett from the Epitaph had Gerwitz from Epitaph had hit us up maybe a year before and said, like, hey, do you wanna sign with it, you know, come over to Epitaph? And we we're like, No, no, no we're with Grand Royal, you know, I think you know, we're gonna kinda hang out here. But then, when Mike wasn't interested in us doing another record, I reached out to Brett and said, "Hey, you know, uh, you know, would you be interested in, in DFL?" and and he was. And I think the the only caveat was he just wanted to talk to Mike D to make sure that it was cool with him, you know, yeah, that, that yeah. everything was cool. And I think Brett and Mike spoke, and, and everything was cool. And and then Adam, you know, Check Your Head was I think coming out or was out. Uh, not check your head.
2: Um, Ill communication. Yeah, check your head was ill communication. Yeah,
4: there, yeah. I think check your head was the, the record that was coming out.
2: Check your head came out in ninety two. Ninety two. Uh, Ill communication so it, came out in ninety four.
4: So, high check your head was out. Yeah. And because this is probably about ninety three, ninety four. Well, anyway, I I remember that it was like you know check your head was out and and uh, what you want and and you know they were like blowing up. And he, and Adam was basically like, you know, uh, you know, he's like, I, I remember him telling me like, Hey Monty, you know, I'm in this other band and it's going to be you know, taking up a lot of my time and yeah. I don't want to hold you guys back. Yeah. And I was just like, duh, <laughs> you <know? laughs> and of course, you know, why wouldn't you, you know, your band, the BCs were blowing up and they, and the, the music they were making was just like next level. I mean, just amazing stuff they were doing on those two records. Yeah. I you know, mean, Checkerhead is probably any you other know, communication like being you know, in my top ten. They're
2: they're just such great records. There, there was and, a there, and, and, that's and, an interesting time, right? The Beastie Boys blew up in '86 or whatever, and then they put out Paul's Boutique a couple years later, and that commercially didn't succeed, even though we now view it as a very pioneering hip hop record. So, in the time you were interacting with them, they were kind of in the middle of being huge and maybe being forgotten, and then. You're right. Check your head and ill communication made them huge again. Um, They were huge. Yeah. yeah. At that time,
4: it was they were you know on the top of the world. Yeah. It's just you know I mean, and doing stuff that was amazing. You know that I that I was just you know I I could relate to and and really inspired by you know the you know you look at ill communication and check your head has like hardcore has this this next level hip hop where they're they're sampling themselves you know yeah. and and then has like crazy like meters kind of jams mm. that they do mm-hmm. that sound so good you know it's it was just nuts yeah. and then they had grand royal magazine also that was that was really cool which i wrote a couple articles for the first the first two
2: ones i wrote a couple articles oh what did you write about i collected those what, what did you write about
4: i did one which was like just like a the, like a dfl Manifesto. <laughs> I think we call it a DFL manifesto. Yeah. And um, and then I did another one for a, a good friend of ours, also in this early 80s, I mean, late 80s, early 90s, kind of Silver Lake Echo Park crowd was the director, Allison Anders. Uh, yeah. She did Gas, Food, and Lodging with Ioni, and then she was doing Mav- Mavita Loca, which was like kind of this East LA kind of drama. So I, I interviewed Allison for um, one of the early grandmas. Oh, okay. I can't remember which one it is. And I remember I brought Spike with me, Spike Jones, because he was he was in the mix also taking photos. He took the photos for the first uh, DFL record hmm. and uh, the seven inch. And so I thought, oh, you know, Spike is is get, he's told me he's interested in getting into film, so maybe he'd want to come and shoot the photos with this for this interview I'm doing with Allison. And he can, he can get to know Allison and kind of get, get into like the, the movie, maybe meet somebody in like, you know, the movie industry.
2: (laughs) Oh, wow. That's nice. That's (laughs) nice of you to think of that. More social connections. I feel like that's a big part of the Beastie Boys grand royal uh, realm. It's what resonated with me. They seem to always be expanding their community, uh, connecting people with each other who they thought were cool. So it seems like you had the same mentality.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. so I did that. I wrote like an interview with Allison and uh, and uh, it was fun. It was, it, was a, it was a good time. But, you know, when Mike wasn't interested in doing a, a second record with us and, you know, and the BCs were blowing up and obviously they were going on like tour for, for a long time, going on big, long tours, world tours, um, Adam was like, sorry, you know, I don't want to hold you back. And... He did, he said, "Look, you know, if you do this record with Epitaph, I'm, I'll, I'll produce it. You know, I'm happy to produce it." And so we got a new bass player, Tom Barda, who was a great bass player also, um, and wrote the, the songs for uh, this record we put out in '95 called "Proud to Be," mm-hmm. and uh, put it on an Epitaph, and, and Adam, and we recorded it again at Grand Royal. Uh, I mean, at, at G Sun. G Sun, yeah. And and uh and uh but that time uh adam adam and mario produced it so
2: nice well it's yeah. got to be nice for you to kind of come full circle in a way to be on epitaph given your love of bad religion and that's a pretty amazing uh trajectory wouldn't you say
4: yeah 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 i you know i don't again i'd grown up with, with with a lot of those guys and uh and it was a really amazing time to be on Epitaph because, um, right when we signed with Epitaph in 94, 95, that's when, uh, around that time is when, is when the offspring blew yeah. up yeah. and, uh, and Epitaph, uh, had, I mean, just an incredible amount of money was flowing into that record label because of, um, uh, yeah. uh, the offspring. And then other bands started blowing up like Rancid and No Effects and, And, you know, the whole, you know, punk, there was like this whole rebirth of punk, you know, with um, Green Day and everything. So, so that was a cool time to be there. You know, again, kind of we're in the the right place at the right time. Just, just dumb luck.
2: Well, the album's called My Crazy Life, but I think it's a fortuitous life for you, if I may. I mean, it just seems like (laughs) you've been, uh, you know, uh, something powerful about you, Monty. You're in the right place at the right time. You know the right people and you get to do really cool shit. And that's. That's amazing. Um, I want to ask uh, about uh, uh, something real quick here. As I say, the album that we're discussing is My Crazy Life. It's uh, got a great reissue. I love the zine, and you mentioned the uh, oral history. It's really well put together, so congrats on on that. Um, I just want to focus in on the uh, crazy part, because uh, someone who's not here with us today is a uh, crazy Tom Davis. You mentioned Tom Davis. Uh, mm-hmm. But he is known as Crazy Tom Davis. The album's called "My Crazy Life." Let's let's focus in on Tom just for a moment. What makes Tom so crazy? Would you say?
4: <laughs> uh, gosh, you'd have to ask him that question. <laughs> I I I I wonder myself. Um, you know, I, I love Tom, I, like I said before, you know, we were like little skater punkers together and, and then kind of went our separate ways from the punk scene. Like I got into drugs. He, he, he moved to Hermosa and, uh, and Hermosa beach and connected with the Pennywise crowd, you know, with Jim and Fletcher that are, were, were, were kind enough to to do part of uh, the oral history with us. Yeah. And, um you know really got involved with that scene and then and then i kind of reconnected with him in in uh the late 80s early 90s really early 90s uh through um you know his sisters and and we're you know uh was married to mike and tom kind of was in that world with max perlick and yeah and i don't think he ever he he told me he would never sang in a band before um dfl though and uh you know, he's a pretty chill, mild mannered <laughs> person until he gets the mic in his hand and then, you know, he he's
2: he's crazy. He becomes Tom. Cr- crazy Tom. Okay. I think I yeah. Something about hearing his voice amplified sets him off. Yeah. And uh, he goes off. Does Tom write most of the lyrics?
4: Uh yeah, that's a good question. So the way that, that we've written most of our songs I write the music usually I'll come with a pretty much of a, a formed song with verses and choruses and breakdowns and whatnot and then I'll I'll say to Tom like look and I'm, and I'm really good at writing choruses kind of the catchy part so I'll uh-huh. say like hey I wrote this song it uh, goes pizza man Pizza man Pizza man he delivers
2: <laughs>
4: and then Tom will write like a verse around that and and to this day, there's some of the verses he's written. I don't even know what he's saying, and, I don't, and and I don't even really care. It just makes sense, you know. I mean, we don't sit sit down and plan it out. Like, okay, you need to be talking about this, that, or the other. We just kind of, just, just again, it's kind of organic. So that's a lot of the songs, like "Proud to Be." Uh, that song, that's how he did that. And, yeah. uh, and a lot of the songs have like the catchy choruses. All right, that. But Tom, I'll just say this, you know. I mean, he's not here. Uh, unfortunately, he couldn't make it. But he's really a Poet, you know, when, when you listen to like the stuff that he writes, it's just you know, kind of like this hardcore poetry of just you know, where does it come from? I don't know, but uh, yeah, he's got like an interesting way of just kind of putting stuff together.
2: Well, it comes through on this record and, and other DFL records, so I just want to say it's uh, it, it was nice to get to know more about you and uh, and how this band came together and, and to celebrate this release, My Crazy Life. Uh, Monty, if people want to learn more about. DFL and this reissue on the internet or elsewhere, where would you like to point them to?
4: Um, well, here, let me give you Tom's cell. No, just kidding.
2: Um, <laughs> we could just call, we, everyone just call Tom and he'll tell just you where to go. Just
4: call Tom. <laughs> uh, he probably won't answer. Um, no, you can uh, go on to uh, Trust Records. Uh, we have a page there that, that has um, a, a way to obtain, to get the record. You can get it online through Trust Trust Records. Also, um, yeah, feel free to follow us on our socials you know uh, whether it's uh, Facebook or um, or Instagram or or threads or uh, uh, or former, formerly formerly Twitter. I don't know we don't use that, but it's yeah. they're all the same is what I want to say
2: they're all at proud to be DFL. Okay, so okay, so people can keep track of you. there. are there things to keep track of? Is there new music uh, on the horizon uh, tour dates, these sorts of things.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're working on a new record right now. Uh, we put one out, I think in '21. Uh, on uh, it was a kind of like a, after like 17 years of not doing anything, uh, we put out a, a record on this label called Sabam, uh that's out of Europe, and and the record was great. You know, it just it's produced by Greg Hudson from Circle Jerks, and it just sounds like old school DFL. You know, just don't overthink it and just play and you know, quick. Quick takes, um, record stuff live. And uh, now we're working on another record uh, for Savannah. Hopefully it'll come out in 24 um, and uh, playing shows. So yeah, best place to follow us is Instagram. Follow us uh, at proud to be DFL on Instagram. That's where most of the stuff that gets posted is
2: okay cool that's great so'll we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll link to some of these things as well so people can just click on them in the in the show notes um Monte, if we can go out on a song from my crazy life I wonder if you can pick one and uh, tell us why you chose it
4: uh well I guess I'd have to I guess I'd have to pick pizza man that's like <laughs> one of one of the more popular ones off the song off the I mean off the record but it's also like one of my favorites
2: okay I mean i I love pizza people think of me as a pizza man I have a Uh, pizza, in-kind pizza sponsorship. Uh, with a, I mean, I don't get to take I don't get to access it as much since I left Guelph. Yeah. With a Guelph pizza place. Uh, and, uh, that was the deal. I like, I'll, I'll promote you, uh, if we get free pizza, me and my family. And they were like, done. And I, I, it's Mm. one of my favorite people made fun of me. Like, don't you want money? And I was like, I do want money, but I also like free pizza. And, uh, there's nothing more satisfying than free pizza. Would you, do you know what I'm talking about? You ever had, you ever had free pizza Monty?
4: I have. I have. I have a we have a dear friend Terry who has a, a pizza place, uh, Air Pizza, and uh, he's he brought me actually a full pizza for my for my birthday a couple years ago which was very nice and this pizza place is not close by.
2: Oh, nice. Um
4: so, but yeah, no I mean, but like if if any if any of the pizza chains are listening and they want Pizza Man you know, if they want to do any licensing deals with DFL, you know, hit us up. We're we're open to all offers. Whether it's for free pizza or whether it's for millions of dollars, you know, we're open.
2: Free pizza tastes better is my motto, I think. <laughs> it just tastes better. We're not selling out, everyone. We're just saying we're acknowledging the power of pizza. And if you can get free pizza or something, you should do it. That's the moral of this episode, I think, maybe. In any case, uh, from their classic album, uh, newly reissued, It's called uh, My Crazy Life. This is DFL with Pizza Man. Monty, this was a a real pleasure to get to to speak with you. I hope you enjoyed yourself, and I wish you the best of luck in the future. Thanks, Vish. Uh, It's my pleasure.
3: All right, this is for Max Perlick, Pizza Man.
2: Yeah, I meant to say at the beginning of this episode and I forgot. There's Obviously, you could tell there's some audio quality issues there, but I hope you were still able to enjoy that conversation with Monty from DFL. It was very nice to catch up with Monty and uh, and have a chat about uh, the amazing stories he has. All the people he uh, met along the way there in his musical trajectory. Quite interesting. So thank you, Monty, for being on this show. Uh, this happens to be the 807th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment one podcast network and is available just about wherever it is you get your podcast. If you can't find an episode that you're looking for if you want to or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter please visit Vishkana.com you can also like Creative control uh, or follow it on various uh, social media platforms primarily uh, we have a Facebook page still you can follow the show on Twitter still at Vish creative or you can follow me directly on things like uh, Twitter and Instagram at bishkana and i'm also on blue sky and tiktok and uh, the, uh, uh, threads and i have some of the other things too you'll, you'll find me just try and find me if you want to and follow me and we can correspond and connect that way if you like also please visit patreon.com creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to support all the work that goes into this podcast uh, $6 American or more a month grants you access to some exclusive content and you get episodes earlier than everybody else. And if you're interested in receiving a Creative Control t-shirt, uh, message me on Patreon and I'll get you one uh, while supplies last. Supplies are dwindling, so if you heard me say this before and thought, oh, I'll get one someday, I'd maybe get on it. I'd get on it because I'm running out of sizes, that's for sure. I want to thank uh, Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf and Planet Bean Coffee respectively in Guelph, Ontario and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario for their in kind support for this show. All fine independent businesses and as you heard me tell Monty, sometimes I get free stuff from these places. That's the deal. That's what I wanted to promote some local businesses and uh, also uh, not uh, take a, take a, you know get, take their money. I wanted their wares. So that's what I did. (laughs) It it usually worked out just fine. So there you go. I want to thank Jim Guthrie. Uh, He lends me some music for this show. You can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you so much for listening to this episode with uh, Monty from DFL and checking out this reissue of My Crazy Life. I hope you'll also subscribe to this podcast or follow it and uh, tell all your friends all about it as well. If you've liked what you've heard, that's a great way to spread the word and Uh, get people on uh, the creative control train, I suppose. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you very soon. Be well. Bye for now.